0: The other kids, they think I'm weird. I don't want to be.
1: If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. (laughs) The boys. The boys. After the blood comes the boys. Welcome to Now Playing's Harry Retrospective Series.
0: Sin never dies.
1: Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. Children, i wandering through the wilderness of sin these days, Mrs. Nell. Hosted by Arnie. They're
2: all going to laugh at you. Stuart. They're all going to
1: laugh at you. And Jacob.
2: They're all going to laugh at you.
1: Join us at nowplayingpodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. You'll never forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language.
0: Why didn't you tell me, huh?
1: Mom? Listener discretion is advised. You ready to dance?
0: Today we're discussing Carrie, starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, Amy Irving, William Cat, John Travolta, and Nancy Allen, directed by Brian De Palma. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I can see your dirty pillows, Stuart in LA,
3: and this is Jacob.
2: And just keep your tits on. Here we are, Stephen King, finally. Oh my
3: god! With an anticipation even beyond Marvel, I think. Maybe at least for me, but man, people have asked for King for years. Arnie, you and I had a long dialogue about do we dare or can we just do a little bit of it, but that's not our way. That's not (laughs) what we do here. We don't just do carry the shining, peace, we're out. We gotta do it all. That's... (laughs) That's the now playing curse. Children of the Corn, Urban Harvest, here we come. Uh, Nine Children of the Corns. I just want to put it out there. We will do them all. It is going to take years, folks. Obviously, we're not going to do them all in one long stretch. There are other movies we want to see along the way. I do not want to do that to my life. (laughs) But yes, this is the onset. We're going in the order in which King published. So from his very first book to his very last adapted work, That will be the last podcast that we cover. We're here with Carrie because this was it. This was the one that made his name. Debut novel. And debut film. And
0: it seemed like the gods were forcing us to do this because Carrie, a remake with Chloe Grace Moretz coming out in four weeks.
3: So it was destined, right? We didn't have a choice. Well, you know, if it were the Shining prequel they talk about making, it just means we would have covered Carrie in the spring like we originally planned. But yes, it is nice to be able to kick off a series in all the different iterations that we do get king, which is to say that we got an old movie, we got a unofficial sequel... We got a TV thing, and yes, we got a reboot. I think that King comes in many forms. We even get a musical. I'll I'll be talking about that later as well. I think Carrie has been adapted in a lot of different ways, as King is wont to do. And it's fun to be able to talk about all the ways he's brought to the screen.
0: And it's actually pretty varied. I mean, if I say Stephen King, to me at least, and I'm the King fan here, the instant thoughts are Carrie, Shining, Cujo, Christine... The Stand, basically the 70s and early 80s stuff, but we're going to have a nice variety, too. I mean, in Stephen King, we also get Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me and Hearts in Atlantis and 1408.
3: The Running Man, for Christ's sake, an Arnold movie. (laughs) I was not thinking about that when I signed up for King, but then I was like, oh, shit, that's right. (laughs) Bachman, Richard Bachman, his pseudonym wrote that one. We're going to be ending up doing the entire Brian Singer oeuvre before it's done. We'll find a way to get Valkyrie
0: in here somehow. No, I hope not.
3: (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But yes, I do like that about this, is that even though I primarily think of Stephen King as the horror guy from my youth, someone that I read voraciously in my grade school days, I pretty much stopped after it. I think I read Misery and Eyes of the Dragon and it was done and haven't really gone to look at the later movies or books. He was someone that I was a really big fan of and someone that I really associated with horror, but he's got a lot of breadth to his body of work. There's a lot of films to cover here and a lot of different genres and ideas, so I think that that's welcome. If you're going to do something that's over 80 different pieces, let there be variants. I don't want to do 80 podcasts of the same review. But that's how I'm approaching this. I guess I'm the skeptic this time. I'm someone that used to like King and do admire some of the big works, but don't really consume a lot of him now and don't really know probably half of these movies, at least the TV stuff.
2: Well, if you're the skeptic, Stuart, I guess I'm the newbie here. I'm I'm familiar with his bigger stuff, especially with the films, you know. Come on, we got a Kubrick film in here with The Shining. Oh, yeah. You know, Carrie, uh, Misery. Some of his bigger films, yes, I'm familiar with. You know, I read a handful of his books. Just not my thing. Just nothing against... It's not even a horror thing. It's just I don't like his style of writing, where you put in a lot of extra words that aren't needed and pad that shit out. Not my thing. I like to get to the point here, but... I've probably seen more of these movies. At least I'll see the first installment. When we get to that Children of the Court, no, I, I've never gone much <laughs> deeper. You know, Pet Cemetery, seen it. The six or seven sequels I'm sure there are haven't seen them.
3: Only one. But yeah, yeah, I missed that one too. Pet Cemetery 2, I have no idea what it is. I'm guessing it's just Pet Cemetery all over again
0: with Edward Furlong. <laughs> oh, I'm so anxious to talk about Pet Cemetery 2 for reasons that, oh boy. That one's got a lot of subtext.
2: (laughs) Now I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, I'll
3: put that in my calendar for what, 2016? It's going to take a while. That wasn't one of the early
0: books. (laughs) No, and I'm coming in this as the Stephen King fan. If you've listened to Books and Nachos outside of our movie tie-in Books and Nachos episodes, yes, there were a few. Books and Nachos was never intended to be a now-playing bonus feature. I reviewed Under the Dome back when it was a new release. I'm still reading King. I have been a member of the Stephen King Book Club, the one you saw advertised on television, since 1990. Never let that membership lapse. So that's 20 years of me getting every book of his in hardcover as they're printed. Wow,
3: you're still a member. I do remember that library. It was impressive 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, they stopped doing the nice, special, embossed signature editions. Now they basically send me the same ones that go to Barnes & Noble. But yeah, up until about 2000, when I think his popularity waned to the point that it no longer warranted special covers in that regard, I have everything in a special book club edition with his signature on the front in gold. I mean, I got into King pretty heavy. And I got into them as I did a lot of things because of you, Stuart. You and most of our class in the fifth grade were reading Stephen King. It seemed from fifth grade to seventh grade everywhere I'd look, especially skeleton crew. I couldn't look across the classroom without seeing skeleton crew, but I'd also see the dead zone and the stand. And I saw all these books and I was getting into horror, but actually... A little bit afraid of horror. I was only 10 years old and I thought there were horrible things there. If you listen to our Friday the 13th podcast, my first experience with horror was seeing Mrs. Voorhees decapitated and it gave me nightmares for years. But eventually you were kind of who I went to as my guru. I'm like, I'm going to go to this dark land that is Stephen King. All my friends are there. I'm scared, but I'm going to read it. Where should I start? And, like, now playing the fourth grade edition, Stuart goes, here's
3: his first book, Carrie. <laughs> oh, did I give you Carrie? It is the one that I remember spending the most time on because it was one of his biggest. I don't think I had ever read a book as long as it when it came out. Eventually, I did make my way back to Firestarter and Pet Cemetery and all of those. You're right. From fourth grade until ninth grade, when I made my 20-page English essay about the writings of Stephen King, I was a voracious Stephen King reader and try to get everything in.
0: And I did most of it actually in high school and college. During those grade school years, I did read Carrie, but everybody was reading It, and then everyone was reading Tommyknockers, and then everyone was reading the revised Uncut the Stand. So I'd actually just keep up with the new releases. It wasn't until my college years that I went back and started writing term papers on The Shining. I can't wait to talk about that one too with my term (laughs)
3: paper history. (laughs) (laughs) Already discussed in some of the Nightmare on Elm Street podcasts is the fact that everything Arnie wrote about in English composition classes was some kind of serial killer.
0: And I still got a degree with honors. (laughs) (laughs) I even, in a video production class, had a horror montage with mini Stephen King films. So yes, it was part of my higher education. And so... I am so glad to be able to talk about it and really, as the fan, I am alone handling the Books and Nachos and I'm not just going to do the stuff that was adapted into movies. I'm going to do every word Stephen King put on paper that I can get my hands on over at Books and Nachos. You can hear my deep critique of Carrie over at BooksandNachos.com now. I'm glad we're not doing only King because when I get down to reading two versions of The Stand, I think I'm going to
3: need a few months there. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? I'm joining your book club. I'm not going to be on Books and Nachos, but I'm going to try to keep up. I am going to try to go back and read as time allows the works as we're seeing the movies. I have read Carrie. I actually read it last Christmas because I was preparing myself. This new movie was going to be a March release. But, in fact, I have pretty fresh memories of this, so I can't wait to hear your show. But if
0: we're going to go through King, it makes me happy, personally, that the first King movie I ever saw and the first King book I ever read is the first King podcast we're going to do, and this is Carrie. And I remember seeing this movie as a young kid. Again, fourth grade, my parents had just gotten a VCR. And because I thought horror was this dark, horrible thing... Carrie was going to be shown on NBC or our local, you know, affiliate back when we only had 13 channels. The young people are like, you only had what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't air 24 hours. Yeah. At midnight, they were going to show Carrie and then, yes, go off the air. Hold your guy static. <laughs> and I set up the VCR to record Carrie and the whole next day at school, I had this hitting my stomach like i was going home to some debauchery a horror film and i took the vcr i couldn't watch it in the living room because my parents might see so when they weren't looking i actually yes a nine-year-old i unhooked the vcr and took it into my own room hooked it back up not to watch porn
2: but to watch carrie not suspicious at all <laughs> not suspicious as all as you haul the vcr in your room <laughs> and
0: these things were as big as i was in 84 they were not tiny Yes. And I watched this movie and it got a couple jumps out of me, I will say. And we'll talk about them as we go through. But there were a couple moments that burned into my
3: memory. It all comes down to one for me. I don't remember my first viewing of Carrie, but I definitely remember what impacted me about it
2: you know i seen this i like you already i watched it on tv i didn't watch a midnight show it was just on like a saturday afternoon i remember watching it watching it this time around very different experience seeing an unedited cut i feel like watching it this time around it was really the first time for me to see this you know it's unedited there's we'll get into it but there's stuff they couldn't show on tv but isn't this one of those films like even if you haven't seen it You know what it's about. It's it's really seeped into the pop culture, kind of like you, Arnie. You'd never seen Jaws before you watched it for now playing, but you knew what happened.
0: I think it kind of is, but I also am not entirely sure. I mean, you know about the telekinesis. You know about the blood. I mean, I remember even before I saw this movie, you know, going back to age eight, this was one of the videotapes back when VCRs were new and our local video store had it. I thought it was just about a girl who exploded into blood. I mean, the back of the cover had her standing there in a prom dress, and right next to it, split screen, we'll talk about split screen, was her doused in blood. I thought she just became a fountain of blood, like it was spewing out of all her
3: pores. Yeah, that's the one thing I'm betting everyone knows. Girl in a prom dress soaked in blood is iconic as psycho shower scene i mean if you know anything about psycho you know that someone gets hacked up in the shower i'll say that carrie has the same reputation here you know that there's a prom queen that is coated in blood for reasons unknown and looks really skeletal and freaky in all the pictures they show up
0: and everybody also knows they're all gonna laugh at you and if they don't know it from this they know it from an adam sandler comedy album from the 90s right (laughs) But this could have been a very different movie, you know, being the Star Wars fan that I am, I have known some behind the scenes stuff about this for a long time. You know, if you've ever seen those early test screenings for Star Wars, what is less publicized because it's not Star Wars is Brian De Palma was sitting in the same room with George Lucas watching the same actors and actresses come in and lucas got first pick for star wars but amy irving she was trying out for princess leia and got the carry part william Cat, he was trying out for luke skywalker and got the carry part
3: oh it was a shared audition yeah that's not a bad way to go i mean obviously i think from residual standpoint you might have preferred to get the star wars gig but either way i mean i'll take being in a classic any way i can get it it's you can't lose there as long as you get cast yeah, Carrie Fisher, there was this
0: longtime rumor that she actually got Carrie first, which would have been perfect. Carrie, Carrie. But the big urban legend going around was that she wouldn't do all the nude scenes that Sissy Spacek had to do, and that Sissy Spacek was actually cast as Princess Leia, but willing to do the nude scenes. <laughs> This is all bullshit, by the way. Uh, yes. Sissy Spacek was not cast as Princess Leia, and Carrie Fisher's quote, and it's wonderful, is not only do I love being nude, I would have been nude then. It's total bullshit that I refuse to be Carrie. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that is a fun behind-the-scenes trivia one I had no idea of. You're right, Brian De Palma. This is the first now playing in which we've covered this director, but. At a certain time in his career, he was considered one of the leading lights of 70s cinema. His name was used synonymously with Spielberg, with Lucas, with Francis Ford Coppola, with Martin Scorsese. He was considered one of the big guns, and this movie is a big reason why.
0: I would say the big reason why is Scarface. I mean, nowadays, Scarface is almost Star Wars unto itself, isn't it? I go into stores, there's all these Scarface toys and merchandise.
3: I think it might be for, yeah, the hip-hop community. Scarface is to hip-hop what Star Wars is to sci-fi geeks. But De Palma, I gotta say, other than Carrie, I don't really know his
0: 70s stuff. There was a period in the late 80s where, because of his reputation as a suspense master and horror master, I went and I saw Raising Cain and Body Double and Scarface and Blowout, all these things that he did. But from those movies including Gary, I never really got where he got this reputation. I mean, I find him to be serviceable.
2: Yeah, you know what? I do like, really like some of his movies. Blowout, one of my favorite movies. But yeah, I'm like you, Arnie. He's also got, what, Mission Impossible and The Untouchable? Uh, you know, serviceable movies, but not Lucas. Lucas also has some questionable movies, but he doesn't have that Star Wars, I feel like. Cary, uh, it's big, but he really never did anything I felt that will reach this stature at least in my opinion, besides Scarface, which really has seemed the last 10 years maybe because of the hip-hop community.
3: I have always had a bias against Brian De Palma, and that is largely because I resented how much of his career, his early career particularly, co-opted the work of Alfred Hitchcock. It's kind of funny that in tandem we're doing in our donation drive, Psycho, because he definitely borrows from that movie for Carrie and definitely for his later thriller, Dress to Kill, as well as other Hitchcock movies blatantly theft, I would call it. He took these things, but because he made them in an age where VCRs weren't prevalent and Hitchcock himself was not a popular director anymore... I felt like the general public didn't know it, that he got the credit for the shower scene that should always belong to Alfred Hitchcock. So I think his reputation has changed as people have watched movies and Hitchcock films and realized that he didn't invent some of the things he's doing. But I'm coming back to this with reopened eyes. I do want to reevaluate Brian De Palma and see if he is indeed more than a mishmash of Hitchcock moments and cliches I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and I'm glad we're starting here with Carrie I don't know if we'll ever cover another Brian De Palma but I do feel like it's gonna be a referendum for me on his career and work
0: they are making Mission Impossible 5
3: no true okay so with that said Arnie I think we should get into it you read it why don't you give us the plot Carrie White is a high school
0: introvert socially awkward to the extreme with stringy hair she's often been the target of practical jokes and ridicule And things are no better in her home life where she's berated and abused by Margaret, her religious fanatic of a mother who believes almost everything, even sex within marriage, is sinful and has never taught her daughter about human biology and sexuality. This leaves Carrie in a shall we say, unenviable situation when she has her first period while showering in gym class, and Carrie believes something's seriously wrong with her, and her antagonistic classmates aren't very sympathetic, they pelt Carrie with tampons while chanting, plug it up. But this trauma awakens within Carrie her power. She's telekinetic. When enraged, she can move objects with her mind, a power that convinces Margaret that her daughter's possessed by a demon. But from the shower incident, Carrie's classmate Sue Snell feels guilty and, wanting Carrie to have one happy event, asks her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to prom. Tommy agrees and, after some coercion, Carrie succumbs to Tommy's pestering for the date. As she prepares for the night, Carrie starts to come out of her shell, dressing a little bit more fashionably and standing up to her mother. But other student and head bitch Chris Hargenson has the opposite reaction. She refuses to attend detention for a torment of Carrie, and so she's banned from attending prom. Furious, Chris and her boyfriend Billy and a few other students conspire to make prom night a night Carrie will never forget. By first stuffing the ballot box so Carrie's voted prom queen, and then when she's crowned, Chris dumps a bucket of pig's blood on Carrie. Embarrassed for the last time, Carrie goes on a rampage, using her mental powers to kill almost all of her fellow students, with very few students, although one of them being Sue, escaping. Carrie returns home for comfort from her mother, only to be stabbed in the back, literally, by the zealot. Carrie responds by using her mental powers to impale Margaret with every sharp object in the kitchen, but then regrets the decision and hugs her mama close as she causes their house to collapse, crushing them both. So that is the plot of Carrie the movie, and I'll tell you right now, there are some differences from Carrie the book, but by and large, this is
2: pretty close. So you're telling me the book opens up with a good three, four, five minutes of naked girls in the locker room over the opening credits?
0: Yes, it does. And hey, Ferris Bueller alert, for anyone who's ever wanted to see Edie McClurg in nothing but a barely wrapped around
3: her towel, here you go. (laughs) I was thinking about Ferris Bueller when I saw her. I'm like, how do I know her? And then like at some point a light bulb went off and I went, Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of famous faces here. A lot of people that I would see later that I think we're getting their start here. And she's one of them.
0: Yeah, I was a little bit shocked. Now, this is actually the second scene. We start on the volleyball court. we were supposed to have a different start, a scene from the novel from when Carrie was a very young girl, but the effects didn't work out. It was supposed to be Margaret was yelling at her daughter because the neighbor was sunbathing and Carrie was watching and frightened of her mother. Carrie actually pelts the house with stones. Oh, yeah, I remember that from the book. So they actually were planning to film this. They did film it, actually. It is oh. all filmed somewhere. All these scenes with Piper Laurie and the young Carrie actress and the neighbors. The problem was the little stones hitting the house didn't really make an impact. And at the end, when the house collapses, it was supposed to be big stones crashing it. And you can actually, I've never noticed until I watched a bonus feature, you see stones coming through. I just figured it was ceiling debris. And it was supposed to be little rocks when Carrie was little. Big rocks crushing the house when Carrie was big. The big rocks effects didn't work either. And De Palma was like, fuck it, burn the house.
3: You know what? I don't think you need it. I kind of like the way, by omitting that, it kind of feels like the very first time Carrie ever demonstrates any power is right here in the opening scene. That she didn't have, even though we know that she's been victimized and traumatized for all of her years here on Earth, this is the first time she's actually fought back.
2: Yeah, I felt like, at least the way the movie portrays it in the cut that we see, that her telekinesis is linked to her becoming a woman she has her period and i took it when she makes that light go out as she's getting berated by the other girls that that was the first time that her powers rate made manifest i like that more i think that's a stronger link to have her power linked with her becoming a woman instead of just something that was always in her and she did as a little girl
0: it's cleaner i'll definitely say that and i think king intended that to be the case but he did go back and have some flashbacks to when she was a child but only a couple of times as a child could she use it it really came into its own with puberty but no i kind of like this it's a little bit x-men isn't it you hit puberty and you gain your mutant power but it is much cleaner than she had it all along and is just now learning to use it
3: You know, you say that and it's true. This is a superhero story. I thought we were getting away from that. I thought we were doing horror (laughs) movie, but I don't know where the origins of the powers come from. Maybe she lives above a reservoir of toxic waste. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, this is a typical comic book character. Jacob, you got to admit, nerd gets superpowers and fights bullies. This is what we've been watching over at Marvel in D.C. Oh, no argument for me on that. That's funny because
0: you think superhero. And while I did think Jean Grey with the telekinesis, to me, this is all 70s. This is a revenge film. This is I spit on your grave. This is Last House on the Left with the addition of a superpower.
3: Oh, I get what you're saying. I mean, it obviously has a different emphasis. She doesn't put on a cape. She doesn't go out there and stop burglars. (laughs) She has a very specific hit list, and it's pretty much everyone that's ever been mean to her.
0: Yeah, I mean, I ask this in my books and nachos, but in this movie, is Carrie a hero or a
3: villain? I mean, in the end, she's a mass murderer. Right. And you know what? That's a big thing with me. If you've followed any of our other horror series, my need to identify with victims is very crucial to how much I usually enjoy a horror series. So it's an excellent question, and one that I wrestle with as we go through this movie. It is an evolving perception that I have. I have a lot of sympathy, of course, I think we all do, here at the beginning, from this opening shot. I'm glad there wasn't one before. I absolutely love the way that the comma establishes, In these first few takes here, everything we need to know about what Carrie White's life has been up to this point. We see this giant volleyball court with all these girls trying to play the game, and it's kind of exciting. You're like, oh, she's not going to get it over the net, and she does. And you don't know who's important until the camera has pulled down almost to Carrie, and you hear this voice. Before I notice Carrie, I hear this voice that says, I'll give it to Carrie. She'll screw it up. And indeed, she lives down to their expectations. I mean, that's been everything for her. We know this girl, right? We all went to school with this hell i was this at certain times in gym class depending on what sport we were playing i mean we've all been there right
2: oh i had flashbacks of you know being forced to play little league baseball and just cowering when i had to go to bat and i would just close my eyes as that ball would whip by my face (laughs) like yeah i think this is very relatable to anyone that wasn't a jock growing up
0: right and i was not a jock either definitely especially as a kid in movie and book form, I could totally relate to her. Now I look at this and I ask if she's a villain, but when I was in high school, oh, who didn't want to be Carrie? Right. Who didn't want to exact that kind of vengeance on your bullies? However, I was never pelted with tampons. I, I, everybody had their share of abuse. I never had this level of abuse, thank God.
2: Well, I think, you know, we're all guys here. I remember hearing stories like this in junior high, especially. There's always those stories about things you'd hear happening in the girl's locker room, some girl getting her period while she's changing. Like, I think this is a real thing. Maybe if Marjorie was on here, she'd have some lurid stories she could share. But I feel like this is the stuff that's happened.
0: I asked, first of all, I asked if there was a lot of naked romps and towel snaps in the women's locker room after gym class. And while she wasn't going to gym class in the 70s, she said no.
2: Taking showers and gym, that yeah, that wasn't even a big thing when I was in high school. I, maybe in the 70s it was. And my other
0: understanding, though I've never witnessed it firsthand, is when your period starts, it doesn't act like you're hemorrhaging out your vagina.
3: <laughs> but this is how I think of it. I mean, honestly, <laughs> this, this was my sex ed. Watching it is so early. This is what I thought actually did happen in the way that it would flow. It was really profound. I had no idea what was happening to Carrie. At the age that I first watched Carrie... I had no more understanding of what was going on in her body than she did. So it was really horrific here as we go from what feels like a Porky's moment, you know, with the soft photography and the nudity and sort of the objectification to pulling into that shower. We think, oh, boobies, a girl lathering herself, and then out comes the blood. It was a stunner at the time. Now, of course, I know that this is the way that the story is bookended, but it was a total surprise.
2: Knowing that this is De Palma, thinking of Blowout, you know, a movie that's about exploitation in film. And that's what I'm thinking going into here. And he always kind of switches that up, at least in Blowout. And I see that here. You know, you start off in the girls' locker room. You've seen these young perky tits bouncing around. And then it slowly morphs into something different, into this menstruation scene. Now, I thought it said she was 17, which seems really late to have your first period.
0: Yeah, it is late and... I mean, it's even later now. I believe it's been proven that hormones in milk and beef cause girls to start around 11 or 12 now. But 40 years ago, I think 17 still was late. I think that's interwoven into the story. I mean, Margaret White, her mother, believes you only have your period once you start having sinful thoughts about boys. She doesn't think that it happens at an age. She
3: thinks it happens with a mentality. Right, and this is what I think is really interesting about watching Carrie now, is that she kind of gets it from both sides here. The first attack she gets is from her peers. She is thinking she's bleeding to death, and we have this really incredible, from her POV, they got Steadicam, you know, roving through the aisles of the locker room, her reaching out with bloody hands, asking for a help, and it's like this weird hysterical mob scene. It almost feels like the Salem witch trials or something, but it's just really frightening to watch all these girls realize that she doesn't know anything about her own physiology and attacking her for it. I mean, that's what's so brutal about this scene is that there's no empathy at all. They hate that she is so naive and so childlike.
2: I do have questions about her mental state here. Again, this is all within the first you know, five, ten minutes of this film where you haven't seen a whole lot of Carrie, got to know who she is, and here she is screaming, help me, help me, help me, and she does seem borderline special needs.
0: Yeah, I agree completely, especially the tone of voice Issy Spacek uses, the panicked grunting that goes on. You do start to wonder if she can put together sentences. King wrote it the same way on the page, too. It's very weird how... She actually does have a mind going on in there, but you don't see it here at the beginning. She just seems very instinctual, and it's not until she's in the principal's office that I think we really get
3: a coherent sentence out of her. Right. We don't really understand her. We understand her through the ways that other people look at her. I think it's also telling that when the gym teacher comes in to establish order, she loses it, too. She gets caught up in the frenzy as well and slaps her. I mean, there's just something about Carrie that makes, quote unquote, normal women angry at her. And it's because that she hasn't grown up. It makes them angry. I think that's fascinating. Carrie gets it from both sides here. And I think that that's key to understanding her ultimate rage. I actually think, and this is my own interpretation,
0: she is the way she is in school because of her home life. It's not a genetic predisposition or anything. She has this nutter of a mother who believes everything's a sin and keeps locking her in a closet. She had absolutely no chance at social normality when from birth she's put down by this tyrant.
2: I totally agree with you, Arnie. She is a victim of this abusive parent that, yeah, locks her up. At one point, what, the principal says you can't interfere in other people's beliefs. Like, yeah, we know her mom's crazy and she's raised her crazy, but, you know, what can you do about it? Very different environment today. You know, child services would be called up right away, but I guess in the 70s. On the gym teacher, for Christ's sake,
0: (laughs) slapping all the students.
3: This is the interesting thing because I do feel like the gym teacher becomes almost like a alternative mother figure for Carrie in this, and that she's offered two different ways on how to be. She can either keep listening to her crazy mother, who is, yes, obviously a villain and obviously a bad influence. is obviously holding her back. But then there's also this gym teacher who, upon this more recent viewing, I don't see her as so benevolent, really. There's something kind of mean and scary about Miss Colin.
0: I'm not sure how to take her because when there's this one really awkward scene and it's because they tried to do, I think, too direct an adaptation of King's novel, but yet they had to abridge it, even though it's King's, I believe, shortest novel at under 200 pages. But when she's talking to the principal, the principal's preoccupied with the menstrual blood on the gym's teacher's shorts and Miss Collins saying, I was right there with those girls. I felt the same way. And then after that... She starts punishing the other girls, and we're going to talk more about it, but it seems really hypocritical. Like, she's taking even more out on these other girls because she's upset with how she felt herself.
3: Yes, that's exactly
2: right. Those girls did throw a bunch of tampons at her. (laughs) I don't feel as unwarranted.
3: And Colin slapped her. I mean... Yeah, Collins went further than anybody, really. Admittedly, it was an era where slapping a hysteric was supposed to calm them. But no, it feels like a violation. And she's not the only student this woman hits. I mean, this just different back in the 70s. You could do that. Corporal punishment. I remember I had to bring in a note saying whether I could be spanked or not. But if your parents checked the box, then they could get a paddle on you. But it brought back memories. Seeing this gym teacher pacing around in the principal's office, smoking on the job even, and talking about how she wanted to beat on this kid for being so meek. You know, I get it. And like I said, it would be easy to see her as the good person that's going to take Carrie away from the bad influence of her mother. I'm going to actually argue in this podcast, they're both negative influences. They both offer Carrie a very limited way of being a woman.
2: Well, yeah, I think with the characters overall throughout this film that it's hard to find anyone that's clear-cut good or bad as we get into all these different characters, even the mom. You know, I think more or less people act like people actually do in this film where, hey, yeah, she's the nerdy, meek, loser girl, but she also really pisses me off. Why doesn't she just stand up for herself? Like, I I feel like these are relatable things. You want to stand up for them, but come on, at some point, take on your own burdens and make your own name. And the
3: principal can't even be bothered to know who she is. Cassie Wright, go home, get out of here, take your bleeding self away. And this is another psychic moment. There's not a lot of these. I thought in my head Carrie was about a girl who demonstrated psychic powers few and far between these moments where she makes lights blow and things fall over. Yeah, it's here in the beginning to reassure us it's coming. If it
0: wasn't for this, I'd be thinking we were watching some kind of weird retelling of Mommy Dearest.
3: It does feel that way, and I have no doubt that Mommy Dearest took from this, just as I think De Palma took from the mother stuff of Psycho, and really built upon that. It's in the King novel, I know, but I really think that he thought about Psycho a lot as he was adapting the work. He did rename the high school to the Bates High School. Oh yes, it's clearly evident in there, and there's also stings. You'll notice when Carrie kind of does her power things, there's a shrieking sound very similar to the Psycho theme.
0: Yeah, it's our little blooper separation noise. If we hadn't just watched Psycho, I might not have caught it. But I knew coming in that there was a shriek when she used her power, but it is the Psycho shriek. If she used her powers four times in a row, someone would be stabbed in a shower. In fact, Bernard Herrmann was hired to score this film. He passed away before he could. That's how
3: close they were going for that sound. Right. And I do think Carrie is being a kind of female version of Norman Bates, just oppressed by this maternal figure. I do want to get,
0: just before we start talking about Margaret White in full, there's one scene that just bugs the shit out of me. (laughs) And that's this scene where Carrie's walking home, and this kid on a bike goes, creepy Carrie, creepy Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) And she knocks him off the bike with her powers. So that's three uses in the powers in like 10 minutes. But then... (laughs) There is just this constant, almost cartoonish, oh, uh, of the kid who's fallen off his bike. It's really out of place.
3: Right. It scared me as a kid because, you know, that would have been me. I would have been the one making fun of her and then, oh my God, she just whooped my ass. But you're right. It's not one of her better demonstrations of power here. (laughs) I think you could have cut this and lost nothing. The kid's related to De Palma, I believe, so. Yeah, it's his nephew and the voiceover is actually done
0: by the gym teacher. Betty Buckley did that? Oh, well, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, then we get home and we get introduced to Margaret White, who, yeah, I do think that More than Carrie herself, Margaret White is the icon of the movie. She's the shark. She's the one who screams about sin and gets the great speeches. She gets all the best lines. That's right. If you're quoting Carrie, chances are you're quoting something she said. And Piper Laurie, who, I mean, I'd seen this long before there was a Twin Peaks, but now I look at her and know her only from Twin Peaks. And, of course, dream a little dream, but...
3: (laughs) Of course, yes. That's only you. (laughs) The culmination of her life's work. A Cory and Cory film. Why aren't we doing that series? You tell me. (laughs) Because I'd kill myself. (laughs) but Lori's very good here I believe she got an Oscar nomination out of it she's really going full on she's not afraid to do it big and I think that it was the right choice it fits within the context of this movie. De Palma is making something that feels very operatic. I'm very aware that the camera is moving with grandiose dolly shots and crane shots and split screens and split focus and having a big performance to match all of his big camera moves I'm tapped in this world. I gotta say i'm forgetting that this is an adaptation of a book watching carrie now it doesn't feel like something that i read it feels like a movie
0: yeah she definitely fits i found out the reason she was going so big is because she thought de palma was making a spoof she thought this was (laughs) like a a mel brooks version of a horror film (laughs) nancy allen and john travolta kind of thought the same thing too they were all stunned when they actually saw the final cut
2: Well, the mom is so over the top. I mean, again, I think the acting's great. Whether she thought it was a spoof or not, this whole interaction between her and her daughter, going on about this religious stuff. I got to ask you, Arnie, you know, she's talking about the raven brought sin. I've studied the Bible. This isn't in the Bible, but yet there's Christian iconography around this home. There's a mural of the Last Supper. Does the book go into what this woman believes? Because it seems like a very strange version of Christianity to me.
0: It does actually go into it quite a bit, but it never gives it a name. It is not based off anything real. She's just a nutty Bible thumper who, after her own father died, is when she found the religion. She was not raised this way, obviously, because this is a religion that leads to the extinction of the human race, right? Where sex, even within marriage, is a sin, (laughs) so... The only births that can happen must all be immaculately conceived.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think they didn't want to demean any one sect of Christianity here. It's meant to be a cult. Just all of them. Yes. an extreme. I think it's a cultish kind of feeling. I've actually known someone, or rather I knew someone who knew someone who was kind of a part of this. Again, it's mailed to them. There's actually places like the Church of the Dying Son or something, you know, just weirdly named churches that send out literature that have all of these kinds of quotes that you will not find in any King James Bible. They just, I don't know where they manufacture them or where they identify this kind of fervent beliefs. But yeah, the Raven and all of that kind of stuff, I have seen these publications try to use to justify all the sin that is surrounding the modern world. They're out there. I totally buy into the fact that she's kind of tapped in, kind of on her own. My sense is that she probably used to actually go to a church and be a part of community, but she herself got so crazy that she probably parted ways with them and is now just kind of making it up in her own head, just going around door to door to anyone that will listen to her and spewing her version of the truth.
2: Yeah, we do get a scene earlier where she goes to one of the neighbors and, you know, you could see she's rolling her eyes. Ah, the crazy Christian ladies here.
0: Yeah, that's a scene actually added for the film. We never get introduced to Sue's mother in the book, we never see Margaret interact with a single character other than Carrie. So that's an addition. I don't know how I feel about that as the introduction for Margaret White. It certainly tells us a lot about her religion, but I think it's a stronger way if we would have just met her when she's beating up Carrie. Just another negative presence there. I don't know that I needed to see her getting a $10 donation from the neighbor
3: to set this up. I think it's better for introducing Sue's mother, who is going to come in right at the end, than it is for setting up Margaret. I think you're right here. It would be scarier to think. I think of Margaret as being a shut-in. Like, she never leaves the house. She spends all of her time sewing and praying and castigating the outside world. There is no outside world. It's all sin around her. I think that would be more effective. But because we need to be introduced to Sue's mother because she's going to play a role towards the end, you know, the scene works for me. I like watching the mom's response. She tries not to be rude. She eventually is like, okay, come in. You know, like she's not at first. She's like, oh, you're at my doorstep. What do you want? All right, come in. And then she's like, can I just pay you $10 to get you out of here? I will, I will <laughs> donate to your cause. I will send you on your way. This should make you happy. And it has the opposite effect. It's a weirdly placed scene though, because it comes right after the
0: tampon attack. And now you have the mother of the girl who was attacked visiting the mother of one of her attackers that just says to me that the reason she's there is
3: because hey your daughter assaulted my daughter in school today you're right it takes a beat to realize that they don't know yet that this is all transpiring simultaneously maybe but i think that margaret would have sided with the girls throwing the tampons it's carrie's fault she had impure thoughts Right. It's the curse of blood. Menstruation only happens to you when you've done some kind of sin. She must have done something to bring this upon her. She wasn't pure enough. And again, it's almost a parody, but this is what Margaret will represent. The whole idea of rejecting womanhood, development, sexuality, all of that. This is what she's offering her daughter, a life of praying in a closet. And Jacob, you said, why don't you stand
0: up to her? She tries. I mean, she says, say these lines from the Bible, and Carrie tries to say no. She is physically beaten into saying the lines, and then she's locked in a closet. And despite knowing this story as well as I do and living with this movie, this scene's really effective. No score, just sissy SpaceX hysteric screaming. It really... It's something primal in me to feel bad for her.
2: Sissy Spacek's look overall as Carrie. I I don't know if she went on some extreme diet to look even thinner. I mean, she looks skeletal throughout so much of this. And if I'm thinking of some weird social outcast girl that's just been abused and doesn't know anything about the world. Yeah, this is what I'm picturing, what Spacek looks like in this film.
3: You'd think that this was her first movie that they dug her out of some, yeah, like freak show or something like, you're crazy looking, let's get you. It was the 70s, though. There was a lot of women that looked like this. Shelley Duvall, we're going to see another one in The Shining here. And Sissy Spacek had already worked. She was in Badlands. She was already an established act. How old was she at this point in her career? She's not a
0: teenager. She was 26, and De Palma did not want her for the role at all. Huh,
3: wow. Can you
0: imagine? Yeah, he had his eyes set on somebody else, and there's different rumors as to who that was. Either one actress who I'd never heard of, or possibly Amy Irving who got demoted when SpaceX finally auditioned. But no, she came in as an audition. She was pissed off because she knew she wasn't the first choice. She came in
3: dirty, haggard, greasy hair, and got the part. Oh, she sells it. I can't imagine this movie without the look of Sissy Spacek. Even more than the performance, which I guess is good, but is largely... She was nominated for an Oscar, too. Yeah, I mean, but it's a largely reactive performance. What I really take away is the face, the eyes, the paint. This woman just... It hurts to look at Sissy Spacek in this movie. She's the opposite of a movie star. She is the girl that you'd never look at. its It's perfect casting. And in that
0: closet is one of the two memories I had from when I saw this as VHS as a kid. And that's this religious statue that until today, the day of recording, I thought was Jesus. I didn't know why Jesus was shot with arrows, but I
3: thought it was Jesus. (laughs) And it is Jesus in the book. It's like an oil painting of an evil-looking Jesus in the book.
2: This is the creepiest of what I thought was crucifix at the beginning here. It's not until the end of the film that we pull away and we see the arrows in this figurine here. But the eyes are glowing. I don't know if there's a candle behind it, but this thing is creepy. I think if I saw this as a kid, that image alone would give me nightmares. But it's not Jesus.
0: Yeah. When I first saw this, it was on a 17-inch screen. I didn't notice the glowing eyes until the very end of the movie, when those eyes are staring at you after all of the carnage, and that scared the shit out of me, like, Jesus is coming to get me. Seeing this on the big screen in my home theater, I now see they have, like, a light bulb behind the eyes, and I go, oh, that's just kind of cheesy and gimmicky. (laughs) But when I was a
3: kid, nightmares. Oh, I think it's still scary. It is uh, horrific. One could hardly imagine praying to something that looked <laughs> like that. Praying to get away, maybe.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, this isn't Jesus, though. That We get to the end of the film, when you see the arrows, and I'm like, why? No, no, no one did a, a William Tell on Jesus. There's no arrows in Jesus. And it's not. This really piqued my curiosity to figure out what this figurine was.
3: Actually, it came to me upon watching this latest version only because we had covered Exorcist Dominion. Believe it or not, but there was someone that was slaughtered in a very similar way in that movie, and I looked up the saint. It's Saint Sebastian.
2: Yeah, a Catholic saint. Again, this is why I have questions about this religion here, but I guess it really is a mishmash. But yeah, the patron saint of athletes and soldiers and the plague, people being protected from the plague. I actually looked into this because I I was really trying to figure out what these religious beliefs were. It, It seems like a weird saint for Carrie, this saint of athletes and soldiers, the opposite of what Carrie is.
0: Well, I'll tell you There was no big thought put into this. What it was, was the set decorator knew that at the end, Carrie's mom was going to get impaled, and so he found a saint that was impaled. That was as much as thought as went into it. Yeah, like Stuart says, in the book, it is Jesus. It was just a matter of trying to set up some imagery that would come back later. There was no big motivation. There's no deep symbolism behind this being the saint that is seen there.
3: And yet I think it works. Like you said, her religion seems to be a mishmash of all the worst possible punishments and the most authoritarian, cruelest aspects of the Bible all mashed into one with other cult logic thrown in here that it kind of works as Jesus and St. Sebastian and just some kind of scary monster doll. I think that's suitable for Margaret White. She and only she could worship something like this.
0: But here's the real interesting thing. Carrie gets locked in the closet. We don't see much of Carrie again for a good 30, 40 minutes. We now are going to spend a whole lot of time with her classmates.
2: Yeah, we're going to get a poetry reading.
0: Yeah, the poetry with the teacher there, who, of course, is a character actor. I know him from Cuckoo's Nest and Cool as Ice.
3: (laughs) That you know them from both is awesome. I didn't remember him from any of them, but the way that he comes across, as most of the characters do here, is largely unsympathetic towards Carrie here. That I do feel like Carrie is trapped, floating around, very reactive. She's in this movie, but she's responding to all the people that have identified her as a problem. And everyone has a different way of fixing Carrie here.
0: Yeah, but he's kind of a dick. You'd think that an English teacher... Reading a poem would be more sympathetic to the artistic heart and the quiet soul. So the fact that nobody will comment on this poem that was supposedly written by Tommy...
2: I really thought the punchline was going to be that he stole it from, like, Kerouac or something. It's actually, I kind of dug the poem. It was really yeah, good.
0: Yeah, he stole it from somebody, but we never find out who, which is disappointing. He takes
2: the secret to his grave. Yeah, the English teacher was supposed to point that out. That's where I thought it was going to go.
0: Yeah, and nobody else will comment on the poem. Only Carrie will say it's beautiful, and it probably is beautiful since it wasn't written by Tommy... But instead of agreeing with it, this teacher, who seemed to almost be creaming Tommy's face over how much he liked the poem,
3: decides to mock Carrie. I think that subtext what I think is there. I think the teacher does have a crush on Tommy. I think it's established here. Everyone loves Tommy. Tommy is completely lovable. He's handsome. He's good at sports. He can write English. He's the greatest American hero. Exactly. He is the (laughs) ideal. He is all-American boy. Carrie is the spit that is on the bottom of your shoe. I mean, everyone, it's important to understand, everyone thinks Carrie is repulsive. The gym teacher, all of them, nobody. She is a pariah to everyone. Even her own mother hates her. She is disliked by the entire world. And yes, even a a teacher who's paid to educate her can't resist the temptation to mock her, attempt to praise Tommy's poem. Now, I mentioned before, Miss Collins kind of becomes a mother pin to Carrie here, that she sees her crying and, and wants to take her under her wing. And her whole way of fixing Carrie is that she's going to turn her more into what men desire. That, you know, oh, you just need to put on some makeup and make yourself pretty and object yourself like all the other girls, and then you'll be popular. That's what Miss Collins is going to do to solve the Carrie problem here. When I was younger, I used to think that she was the good one and the nice one. And here, having seen the way that she responds and seeing the way that she likes to punish the other girls for it, I don't know. Betty Buckley kind of freaks me out. I don't see her as nice. I do. I think
0: she is trying to do the best she can. It's that line from the King novel where she says she sympathized with the girls that confuses the whole movie. It puts a pall over her entire character. Take out that line. Why'd she slap Carrie? Well, you slap her because she is hysterical. And like you said, in 1976, that was an acceptable way of dealing with
2: hysterics. We're going to see a lot of slapping of females in this film. Yeah, I think it was normal. Yeah,
0: and the punishment of the girls, first of all, that comes off almost like a comedy routine out of Revenge of the Nerds or something.
2: I've got questions here. And Stuart, maybe you could help me because when we do get to this punishment, we get this Funky, weird music, and that will come back as we get to the prom. I don't know what the state of teen movies were in 1976. Was there a teen movie genre at this point? Because I really feel like maybe they're trying to parody that with some of these scenes, like this workout with the girls and this weird music they decide to play. Uh, Bad News Bears was out there. That's the only one I could think of. Yeah, kids'
3: sports movies. But honestly, with the Moog synthesizer and all of that, I really was thinking about Clockwork Orange, you know, that there are these montages in Clockwork Orange where they have this totally out of left field synthesizer music that's peppy and happy. It's, it's classical music. It's Beethoven in Clockwork Orange. Here, I think it's an original composition, but it seems totally off from what we're watching. And I agree, these montages, I just write it off as the 70s. Brian De Palma had just made a movie about a killer keyboardist called Phantom of the Paradise, really strange film. But uh, I think he was just still stuck in the mode of making that kind of music. Yeah, this whole scene, it just... And I'll say this about a lot
0: of the non-carry scenes. It goes on a bit too long, and it seems a bit like padding. It feels like we're just going to make the running time. Because when I see this... And the one who really gets me in this whole movie is PJ Souls from Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Her character's name is Norma. She is constantly, like... Chewing gum, wearing the exact opposite of what everyone else is wearing, constantly in this red hat. She's drawing attention to herself with her rainbow suspenders.
2: Okay. Baseball hat girl. That's, that's all I knew we're buying this. Yeah. Film, yes.
0: I'm supposed to hate these girls. These girls all started off pelting Carrie with tampons. And instead I find myself weirdly, yeah, like thinking it's a teen comedy and these are put
2: upon teens against the mean teacher. Yeah, you know, padding is a word that I think of as I watch this film, but it's a word I think of when I read or have read Stephen King in the past. I, I wonder how much of this is just because of the source material. He seems to be able to stretch any short story out into a seven, eight, nine hundred page novel.
3: I don't know. I disagree. I like these scenes. I think it takes the theme that we're going to see play out larger, Vengeance. And puts it in a different context with characters we weren't expecting. That aren't the title character. You're right. We're watching someone being really malicious to these girls for something that was within herself. And, you know, the way that she's going to punish them, all that Miss Collins can do is think about is what the boys think of them. That's kind of what she represents as the gym teacher. And her whole punishment is you're not going to be able to take your dates to the prom. That's what she really wants to do to them. She's just trying to push them to break during these detentions, so that she can really do that to them. And that's what Chris does.
2: One of the things that's working for me, even if I feel this might be padded out a bit, but I enjoy the artistry of how a lot of this stuff is shot. This workout scene with the girls, you know, you have this tracking shot where you just keep seeing Miss Collins' legs, and then the girls doing push-ups or sit-ups. It almost feels like peanuts, where you only see the legs of the adults <laughs> and the kids down there. I don't know, there's something, might not be the most engaging stuff, but I am enjoying how this film is shot.
0: I noticed that from like one of the first shots, one of the things he does here a lot. And because I took a couple film classes and know the gimmick, it draws itself out to me. But the split depth of field where he's got two different lenses, one focused far away, one focused close up on half the screen. And it's really noticeable when you know what you're looking for because half the screen is blurry. But I like it. It gives this film a real great sense of depth to it. You know, I've seen 3D films that have less depth than De Palma brings to this. You really get a sense of place, a sense of space. You know you're on a real location. You're not on some
3: 8-foot set. I'll just go ahead and say it. We're in the hands of a master filmmaker. I didn't think much of Brian De Palma prior to this. I want to go back and watch his work if he's this good. It's not just Hitchcock ripoffs. offs I mean, he does do riffs on Hitchcock, but every time he's used it in the camera, I'm so impressed. And we've seen a lot of low-budget horror movies. Most of them do not achieve what he's able to do. Yeah, and just even throwaway scenes like this. There's just so much going on. I'm never bored. I'm just always engaged because of the way the De Palma's camera is engaged.
0: I think it goes a little overboard at the end, and we'll talk a little bit about that then. But yeah, at this point, it is these filmmaking techniques that are keeping me interested because the really cheesy synth score. It's feeling like one of those scenes out of one of those Incredible Hulk episodes I reviewed for the Gazette years ago. It is just that bland.
3: You mentioned teen movies. I do think the one that was really an influence, the one that comes to me is when we get the car drag scene, our introduction to John Travolta and Nancy Allen. They're driving around. It's it's American graffiti. I do think that You know, De Palma was friends with Lucas. That movie was a very big hit. I don't know why these kids would otherwise be listening to 50s doo-wop music. It feels out of time, certainly not very 70s. But I got in seeing them drive on the strip and him drunk driving and slapping her around for calling dumbass. And it did feel like the mating rituals of those kids in American Graffiti.
0: Fuck if it isn't right out of the book. It is straight out of the book. And one of the things that I'm king for in that book is that he makes Billy a 50s greaser. He even writes in the book that... He's like a time traveler from a teenager from the 50s existing in the 70s. I think maybe King was picked on by some greasers, but we're going to see greasers again and again and again. Billy here, Travolta, the first greaser for King.
2: <laughs> and Travolta was an unknown at this point, right? Grease hadn't come out. He'd play greaser a few years later. But
0: he was a sweat hog and he had a hit song on the radio. Okay. Was that song a hit? He was actually tapped because he had a song as a hit. They wanted him to sing the end credits song. (laughs) But it's actually a, like, ballad to Carrie. And everybody went, wait, do we want our evil guy who just dumped pig's blood on her to sing a love song to her at the credits? (laughs)
3: if people picked up on that, but that would be hilarious. Of course we would because Travolta would go on to be the biggest star in this film, but that wouldn't have been necessarily known at the time. Hilarious. I do not think of Travolta as being an accomplished singer or, or even an yeah. actor for that matter. I mean, I think he's trying to do a Southern accent here. It's, it's not totally clear what Billy's voice is supposed to be, but he is a big movie star. And I do think that there's just, there's a charisma to John Travolta when he's on screen. He can't help But look at him here. He's excellently cast as this notorious bad boy. You get everything that he's about here from his debut. I mean, you just see it.
0: And I primarily, I mean, I've seen a ton of John Travolta movies and love Pulp Fiction. I mean, so many modern ones face off. I could rattle them off. But if I have a go-to John Travolta movie, it's Grease. And that came out just a few years after this. Again, set in the 50s. He was a greaser. He was driving around on the strip with his grease lightning car and listening to doo-wop. So this has always fit very much my
3: mental image of Travolta. Yeah, and he's really an unlikable character. I mean, it's so funny because I don't think I ever hate him as much as I'm supposed to. He spends most of the movie slapping around Chris. And don't you want to slap around Chris? She's a bitch. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Maybe that's exactly (laughs) it, is that Chris is so evil. Almost as evil as Margaret White, but not quite. And he's a real tool in this
0: movie. In the book, he has more of his own motivation. Here, she convinces him to do everything he does while giving what has to be the worst head in the world because she's talking way too much to be doing anything else good (laughs) with that mouth.
2: I thought that too. I'm like, if I could understand you. She's saying, Billy, Billy. I'm like, if I could understand you, you're sucking my dick wrong. (laughs) Like, but I got to say, you know, in high school, in high school, you wanted me to do something. Sucking my dick would be a pretty good way to convince me.
3: You know what? And I had the same thought as well. There's no way. They want us to think that she's performing the act. But with the voiceover dialogue, it's very clear that she is uh withholding until he says yes. I love the edits in this, too. We establish a story in parallel as Chris is baiting Billy into doing her evil plot against Carrie. We have her good twin, Sue, baiting her boyfriend, Tommy, to do the right thing and take Carrie to prom. And I love the way they cut back and forth between these two storylines here. Before, it's Sue's like, I have something I want to tell you. I want you to take Carrie to prom. Cut. And we skip over all of what must be hours and hours of dialogue of why and him going in and in and in. And when we finally cut back, he's watching TV, she's doing homework, they've clearly talked it all out, and he goes, all right, I'll do it. I like that. I like that ellipsis. I like the fact that De Palma, through editing, is able to really tell the story very quickly, and by doing it in parallel, it's fun. It's fun to watch the good plot and the evil plot commence simultaneously.
2: Yeah, I do find it interesting that while we have Chris and Billy with their evil plot, we get Tommy trying to woo... Carrie, to take her to the prom at at the request of his girlfriend, Sue. And I'm kind of surprised that Carrie, because, again, we haven't got a lot of characterization with her besides that locker room scene, seeing her fighting with her mom. She's actually somewhat smart enough to figure out that maybe they're trying to play a joke on her.
0: I think that she's had a life of this, though. I think anytime somebody's invited her to something, they've been setting her up. So... I mean, yes, given we started off thinking she was special needs, but by this point we understand she understands poetry, she understands enough that her mother's full of shit, there's a brain in there, she just is been beaten down. So I was really happy with this characterization that she resists and that it takes some coercion and again, the gym teacher gets involved.
3: Yeah, I love William Katz's response during the scene where the gym teacher basically hauls Sue and Tommy into the office and is like all right, what the hell are you doing? And it's, again, being mean and vindictive, as she's want to do. She's doing it, quote-unquote, to protect Carrie, but she's also doing it just because I think that there's something really mean in this woman. And so William Cat is just fun to watch here. He's just kind of like, you can tell he's thinking, I don't want to take her to prom. I'm being forced (laughs) to take her to prom. I'm going to be embarrassed to take her to prom, but I'm doing it only for my girlfriend, for reasons I don't ever, won't ever understand.
2: Was there another blowjob scene they cut out? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's funny is in the book, Tommy's a big reason why Sue makes it happen. Sue feels guilty and Tommy's kind of saying, you need to do something to make it right. And when it comes around to, all right, what I'm going to do to make it right is skip my own prom. Tommy, take her. Tommy's like, well, all right, I guess I kind of put <laughs> her up to this.
3: <laughs> I like the way it plays here. I, I really do think that the choices made here are as good or are better than what's in the book. It plays.
0: I like it only because of William Cat's performance, which in the very early scenes is so exceptionally bland. But during that scene you talked about with the gym teacher, I think he goes off script. I think he's just like (laughs) ad-libbing or being himself. Or maybe he was just one of those days when you're laughing between takes because he actually feels natural during that scene i can't say i think natural of him or his hair the rest of the movie
2: he does win me over though he convinces me that he's at least by the time he gets the prom he's not gritting his teeth so much about having to take carrie that he's actually trying to help this girl
0: i really wondered his motivation at the end and it finally comes through but i never entirely trusted him i mean i knew he'd never do anything to carrie i knew coming in that he wasn't part of the plot But whether or not he was the entire time Sue's put-upon boyfriend or whether he got past it and got to see Carrie as a person was something that I was really interested in and I didn't get until moments before his death.
3: Largely, I just think he's an object. The fact that he's called Tommy, the movie Tommy would have just come out, he kind of does look like Roger Daltrey. I think that's probably... A big reason why he got cast, he's just the perfect blonde guy, and I think he works in that vacuous kind of way. But you're right, we like Carrie more in this second act of the film as well, because she's fighting back. She's trying to see who she can trust here. She does not trust her mother anymore. One of the things that the opening does, not only does the period start her telekinetics... It starts her really questioning everything she's ever been told. She's now going to the library and she's going to look up facts for herself. She's not going to trust her mother to tell her the way things are. And she's going to find out what's been going on with her since her mother won't. She's finding out about telekinetics. This
0: is the movie that taught me the meaning of the word telekinesis. I learned it as she did reading the dictionary.
3: Actually, I learned it from Escape from Witch Mountain. But oh man, (laughs) did I want this power when I was a kid.
2: I want it now. Remote control too far away. It's the force. So for some of you younger listeners out there, she's using what is called a card catalog (laughs) in the library here. There was no internet. There were no databases. She knows she looks up miracles and she skips all the religious stuff and she goes to the science books. I'm wondering, okay, is this going to be about a science versus religion type film as she starts looking into this telekinesis? And she does spend a lot of time. It it just seems like they wanted to come up with some reason. I don't know if in the book they delve more into, but it's just like, oh, yeah, there's people around the world with telekinesis. It's just kind of a normal thing.
0: That's actually a big part of the book. A lot of it is told, in retrospect, a commission investigating whether or not the telekinesis is real or whether there was some hoax and who was involved in the hoax and if telekinetics were real. And I mean, King even in his very first novel, gets into the minutia of telling us the genetics required in order for a telekinetic to be born. And I'll tell you right now, it's different than what we see next week in The Rage Carry 2.
3: I accept it on blank principle. This girl has a weird power that no one else has. She's like no one else, so that's why no one else has this power. She may be a miracle of God, certainly, or some weird God that Margaret prays to. All I know is, Is that while I pitied her at first, I didn't have a lot of sympathy until she became an active character. And it's happening now. She's finally going to say, no more. She's going to sit down with her mother and say, I'm not going to eat that dessert. It gives me pimples. I'm going to the prom. And by the way, I'm more powerful than you.
0: And these are great scenes. I love Piper Laurie's reaction shots in all of them. You say Carrie's the reactive character. And in the first act, that's certainly true. But here... Piper Laurie keeps that performance first notch as she argues against her daughter's every decision. And you start to realize Margaret's kind of impotent. She's not able to stop it.
2: Carrie becomes more proactive here. She starts standing up to her mind. That's what we want to see, this abusive mother. We want to see Carrie finally stand up to her. And again, I, I think it's convincing, you know, I restarted off wondering if she was special needs. But yeah, I do see this development throughout the film with Carrie where she becomes more and more her own. I, I think, you know, it makes sense. It's the Electra complex here, I guess. There is no father figure, but, you know, it's that archetypal storytelling where the girl, she becomes a woman and, she, you know, she's replacing her mother now. She She's had her period, that's given her powers, and now she's standing up to her mom.
3: So, yes, as she's putting on shades of lipstick, we see Chris putting her plan in motion. I ask you, we all know because this is a blown storyline, you know what it's about before you see the movie, but at what point would we know exactly what she had planned for Carrie White in this story? I don't think I would have gotten it just by them visiting the Bates meatpacking company.
0: I don't think I'd have realized it until we see the bucket above the stage. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yep, I I do think it's a clever reveal, a surprise that's blown now because this movie is so beloved and iconic, but you'd be really wondering and engaged, what is this woman cooking up that she keeps whispering to her friends that she's not telling us? We know that pigs are dying, we know that they've done something in the gym that's on a rope, but we would not know that it was a bucket of pig's blood, I don't think, you're right, until we're on prom night. Until they have this incredible crane shot that kind of shows us the whole room, moves up to show it, and then in the distance, you can see Tommy and Carrie being crowned king and queen. We we see right at the moment that they're going to get it, what their fate is. But I do think up to that point, you would just know that it was a mysterious evil plot by Chris that would end in no good.
0: And it's a plot we have to wait a long time to get to because we get more scenes of teenagers the scene that really makes me scratch my head and really makes me wonder if they... I had to check because I thought they were going Jonah Hex, I mean, 30 years before. But I really thought some of these scenes might have been included to make a theatrical running time. But no, this movie's almost almost 100 minutes. They could have cut the scene of Tommy trying on the tuxedo.
2: What? You don't like when they, like, fast forward? They're like with their mouths (laughs) he didn't enjoy that i thought my dvd was broken i really thought
0: i had a dvd (laughs) error and it wasn't until the bonus features that they said well we thought the scene was running on a little long so we decided to fast forward it
2: Cut the scene, it plays no part in this film. I don't need to know how Tommy decided to get ruffles or not with his tux.
3: It's kind of cute. I can think you guys are a little bit tough. It's not like it's that long. Is it superfluous? Absolutely. I don't think we see these two guys again. They're forgotten characters here for comic relief. The sped up thing, I agree. It's a little weird, but it's De Palma. He likes to use all the tricks, and it was something that was already used in Clockwork Orange. There was a lot of sped up motion in that movie to montage as well.
0: It just here felt really out of place. If I'm watching something like Natural Born Killers that is constantly changing film stock to video and all these other little tricks and it goes into fast forward, I roll with it. I've come to expect it. But in this movie, first of all, the 70s, second of all, where we haven't seen any kind of gimmick like this before, it really just caught me off guard. And yeah, I agree. You need to cut the scene if this is all we're accomplishing with it. If we'd been even setting up something where we got to see Tommy as a nice guy or get him to get his friends to say, hey, we'll be nice to carry on prom night, anything to move the story along. But this is slamming the brakes.
2: I do wonder if you were supposed to get this, like, here's this idyllic teenage life, getting ready for the prom, because we're going to juxtapose that in the next scene with one of the most famous lines, I can see your dirty pillows, and more of this abusive mother towards Carrie. And I I just wonder if it's supposed to put us off guard, make us forget that Carrie lives in this horrible world and kind of get lost in this, just this teenage prom fantasy. I don't think it works, but I'm wondering if that was the point was.
3: I think we're supposed to hope. We're supposed to hope it works out for Tommy and Carrie in some weird way. We're supposed to like him enough to want to see this come to fruition. This is not a movie in which every scene is going to make us feel awful. There's enough of that. We're At this point, Brian De Palma trying to set us up. He wants us to think that Carrie can have a happy ending. He wants us to think we're watching Cinderella and not Stephen King.
0: True, it definitely has the Cinderella vibe, especially, I guess, during this scene, and Carrie's trying on makeup, and
3: the clerk doesn't seem too happy to have Carrie there, though. (laughs) She's, like, glaring at her. I'm telling you, she is unlovable. Not one single person has any sympathy whatsoever except for Sue, and that came at a really hard price, actually. She's the only one, and I think it's why she lives. Everyone else is just trying to fix Carrie. Everyone else is just trying to make her their version of normal. But I don't think it takes very long. I mean, we're already at prom night. Lickety split. This is, couldn't be more than a minute of footage. And she's putting on the lipstick in front of the cracked mirror and she's going out there and leaving mom behind to have fun. I will admit, I checked this after I watched it.
0: Yeah, we get to prom, and there's still almost half the movie to go. We're an hour in with 40 minutes left. It's, you know, the third act. It's just the second act is the one that drags for me. But the third act, yeah, we are finally at prom,
3: and Norma's there with her baseball cap and her dress. Well, she's part of the plant now. We saw a quick scene in that montage of, Chris conspiring with her. She is teaming up with his kid, Freddy, the one that wasn't able to bring the sledgehammer down on the pigs. Their role now is to hide the ballots and to rig the election so that they're sure they can put Carrie and Tommy in harden's way. And that's one change from the
0: book I don't necessarily like is they're rigging the election in the book. They're just talking to the students and saying, hey, vote. But it could be somewhat implied, especially by the book, that when Carrie decides to vote for herself and to the devil with false modesty, that she might have brought it upon herself. Here, yeah, she did nothing to bring it upon herself.
2: I did find it weird that Tommy and Carrie were on the ballot. These weren't like write-ins. These were pre-printed. I was wondering if Chris had something to do with making up fake ballots where they'd be on there. I don't know how Carrie would get on there in the first place.
3: I don't even remember how this happened. Did you guys go to prom? I did. I don't ever remember voting for anyone.
2: Winter formals, proms, yes. You always voted for a king and queen. Though it wasn't always a couple. There was a guy side and a girl side.
3: Mm. I don't remember the election process, but I assumed it's always rigged.
2: You're
0: right there. Yeah, that's how mine was, guy side, girl side. The way it's described in the book is that it was going to be Tommy and Sue, and when Tommy changed dates, they just changed the name on the
3: ballot. They were a a celebrity couple, if you will. The fact that Sue isn't going is a scandal. It's part of why everyone has got eyes on Carrie. I mean, who is she to take the place of Sue? I think they're curious, and maybe even coming around here in these moments where she's Meeting the girl who's admiring, I'll use the word admiring, noticing her homemade dress, I feel like acceptance is starting to happen. I was kind of taken back to my own high school. I went to a
0: pretty big high school in Florida and thousands of students. There were always social groups you didn't know. No matter how big a pariah Carrie may have been, there could be students with whom she never interacted or who didn't pay attention. Obviously, Chris's clique exists to pick on the meek. But there had to be just some average folk who was like, oh, yeah, Carrie, I think I had class with her one time and not know much about her. And, yeah, seeing her for the first time, you'd act like you'd act towards any fellow
3: student, especially if it's your boyfriend's friend's date. I think that even Tommy is having a change of heart there. You know, he probably figured the worst about taking this girl there. But the fact that he actually offers to... Hang out with her afterwards at the cool club with the other cool kids. I think that he thinks that she's not a uh, embarrassment anymore. That he's maybe kind of proud. It happens in that dance scene. That really long take shot from below of them kind of twirling around there. I think that you're just, you're really watching something transpire. And it's kind of a magical moment. It's certainly dizzying.
2: I agree with you, Stuart, that dance scene, you know, before that, Miss Collins is hugging her, having a heart to heart with Carrie. And Tommy says, don't let me catch you hugging other guys like that, you know, playfully. But I feel like he really does come around. And especially with that dance scene, it sells it to me that Tommy's not such a bad guy.
0: I was influenced having read the novel where in the novel he falls for. Her. But from William's cat performance, I'm trying to judge him in the movie and i think that's in there that he is falling for carrie he's having a really good time with her and he kisses her that night and i believe that kiss was a kiss he wanted to have not a kiss he was trying to have to put on airs
3: yeah even travolta i think says something about her looking cute or something you know i think that everyone is transformed when she plays by their rules she can be one of them. I do feel like they would have accepted her if she had disrespected her mother long ago and tried to be more like them.
0: Yeah. I think the prom scene is nice to see Carrie in her element to give us this false happy ending here. But yes, some of the camera work is starting to grate on me right here. That scene you're talking about with them spinning. Maybe it's because I'm watching this and it's enveloping my entire field of vision on a big screen. But my God, I started to get a little motion sick.
2: Oh, I'm mesmerized by the camera work. I mean, this entire prom scene, I think, well, I I don't think it's any surprise that this is the strongest part of the film, but even as far as the camera work goes and the the different at least it works for me what goes on with all the different kinds of shots that we're going to see here.
3: Yeah, you're not going to get me to say anything bad about De Palma's choices here. I think that he knows how to tell this story. I think the story is told better on the screen than it is the page.
2: I do have a question and maybe it has something to do with what's on the page. Why does Sue show up to the prom? She's in her regular clothes. She sneaks in. Why did she show up?
3: She's the fairy godmother. She wanted to see her handiwork. She wanted to experience Carrie's joy. I think that she did this as a way of atoning for her guilt. And if Carrie could be happy, then she doesn't have to feel so bad anymore.
0: Yeah, I think that's what it is as well. And that's not in the book. That is something added for the movie. In the book sue gets to survive by not being at prom
3: right which makes more sense quite frankly and i kind of like that aspect of the book because she has her own little moment that they didn't film in the book that it it elongates carrie's rage i'll put it that way carrie has more of a presence in the entire town in the book as opposed to just feeling here in the gym
0: and that was a budgetary concern this movie was made for less than two million and i mean they wanted to destroy the town they had $2 million. They destroy the school. <laughs> so. Yeah,
3: exactly. It makes sense. And they didn't need to. I mean, I think that all of these economical choices at the end of the day, I don't really miss them. But when I think about that book, I do like Sue's encounter with Carrie better on the page than the fact that she's here in the gym, but somehow gets out when no one else does. Eh, you know.
0: Well, that's also a big change between the book and the movie. Here in the movie... Carrie has one power. She can move things with her mind. In the book, she can project herself telepathically and read telepathically thoughts from others. And so what happens is, as Carrie goes on a rampage, she's psychically connected with Sue. And Sue is reading her thoughts. She's projecting her thoughts onto those around her. And she's also a bit of a fire starter. So there's a lot more of her psychic powers in the book here. I think because it's the most visual of them and it also is cleaner, they just reduce it down to telekinesis, making the one-trick pony that King will epitomize in future books.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't need voiceovers where she's reading minds or whatever. What I do like with Sue, again, going back to what De Palma brings to the film, is maybe story-wise, why is she there? Why did she get out? I don't know, but I love how this is where the horror starts, right? She notices this twitching rope, and you see this long shot, slow motion of her, you know, in this very beautiful music playing. We've criticized a lot of this music. I love the music here. It's, again, the juxtaposition versus what's going to happen with this fairy tale setting and, you know, this slow motion of Sue slowly realizing what's about to happen. It's chilling.
0: If you put the synthesizer in the closet, I love the score of this movie, especially this little coronation music, the same music that opened the film. Anytime they break out the 70s wah-wah synth, yeah, shoot it. But when it's this nice melodic theme that goes through, very good. And the suspense
3: music, too, although a little Hitchcockian.
2: Very Hitchcockian.
3: Yes, you can say that for most of anything that Brian De Palma does here, but it doesn't feel like plagiarism the way that I've felt about some of his movies. And like I said, I'm curious to go back to some of those movies and see if I might have a difference of opinion now. But having Psycho fresh on the brain and seeing this movie now, I don't feel like it's as blatant as uh, my memory had it. It's a great scene, yeah. All of this in slow motion. The, the dawning horror of it. Look at what Miss Collins is doing. I'm telling you, that is a mean woman there. She sees Sue finding out what's going on. She doesn't ask what's going on. She takes it as another opportunity to yell at a young woman. No, no, no. She
0: thinks Sue is there to cause trouble. She thinks that there might be some kind of scandal because she didn't trust Sue and Tommy earlier. Sue showing up is a harbinger of bad things to come. So, she does the right thing in getting Sue out of there because Sue doesn't belong. She's breaking the rules. She has no idea that Sue's trying to stop a calamity.
3: But what rule has it
0: that only people that are coupled can come to prom? That was Welcome straight. to the 70s. <laughs> yeah, sure you could go stag in the 90s, but in the 70s? Yeah, that was pretty common.
3: I can't believe that they would chase this woman out. And again, the fact that she would assume the worst by seeing Sue there, I think is telling of her character.
2: Stuart, I think it's been a while since you've been in high school. I mean, there are some cruel things that go on. I don't blame Ms. Collins for being a little suspicious that this girl shows up, you know, in a flannel t-shirt. She's not even in a prom dress.
0: Plus, her boyfriend is on stage with another girl. They're both looking very happy. They kissed earlier. So there could be some, you know, Jerry Springer-type jealous rage about to happen.
3: All right, I'm not going to dwell on it. It's just, like I said, my memory of this character was always that she was the one that was going to save Carrie, that it's a tragedy when things go bad that she's killed here. I didn't have that feeling watching this movie, but I do like all of this slow-mo drawing out here. I I love the fact that when we cut to under the stage and Chris is about to pull the rope, we get that close-up of her lips, and then we see Billy, as the way I always think of Travolta in this movie, slapping her because she probably called him dumbass or something, but it's just everyone is doing what they've been doing to me. like That's Sue is trying to be helpful, but it's just a little too late that Mrs. Collins is yelling at a student, that Billy is slapping his girlfriend and she's smiling because she's going to do something evil. Everyone is exactly who they are in this elongated slow motion moment. And then the blood comes down. And yes. Carrie is who she
0: is, too, the victim. And, wow, again, an iconic image. But you guys have been crediting De Palma's camera work. I've liked quite a lot of it, but I love what he does with
2: sound here. You mean lack of sound?
0: Yeah. he Almost all of it is gone. All you
2: hear is, like, the bucket. Yeah, and the dripping blood. Yeah, I love this. It goes totally quiet. Yeah, just that dripping blood and that that swaying of the bucket. It's chilling stuff for me.
0: Yeah, and you see people laughing, and you are lip-reading them as they form words, and yet you can't hear a thing, and that just, it really is holding that suspense, because you know she's powerful, and if you don't know how this movie's already gonna end, you gotta wonder what happens when that shoe drops, and he just holds that note the right length of
3: time. This is all Carrie POV, right? Can we trust the fact that this is actually what's happening or did she just snap in that moment and her worst fears are now what she sees? Because it's like a kaleidoscope when she looks out there. It's not reality. I mean that everyone's laughing that the gym teacher would be laughing doesn't seem right. In fact, I would put it out there. If I were at this prom and I saw this, my first reaction wouldn't be to point and laugh. It would be to go, ick and run away for fear that the blood would get all over me. I mean, I think that the idea that everyone would be amused by this spectacle is all in Carrie's head.
2: Yeah, right before they start laughing, we see that bucket, it finally comes detached and hits Tommy in the head. I don't know if it kills him. He goes down pretty hard, though.
0: In the book, it's made fairly clear, slightly ambiguous, but yeah, it killed him.
2: We see Norma laughing, and she's, you know elbowing her friends trying to get them to laugh but then we get the mother's voice over they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you and then yes we get that kaleidoscope i don't see miss collins laughing i don't see the principal laughing this has got to be you know again carrie has been victimized by her mother she's been abused and she's bought into her mother's bullshit and now we're going to see the consequences of that
0: and what's funny is having conversations with friends in my teenage years My question was, does Mrs. Collins deserve to die? I was asking this when I was 14 because she seemed to be the good person. And what I was told is, but she laughed. You see that laugh. And that one laugh is what it takes to kill her. And so watching it this time, I had the same question you did, Stuart. Is what I'm seeing Carrie's imagining of what's happening, or can I trust that what I'm seeing? And it wasn't until I heard De Palma on a bonus feature say, no, the teacher never laughed.
3: Yeah, I didn't think that she would. I thought that that was POV. I really thought that that smile was misplaced. Which is not to say that I think that Carrie's anger at her is misplaced. I do see, I think there's a reading of this movie. Now, it's stepping out from the actual experience of the movie. But I do feel like this is a story about a woman trapped between two different ways of growing up. She can either be the Madonna or she can be the whore. And that there have been two mother figures trying to guide her in either direction. Both are very limiting. And the fact of the matter is, to me, Miss Collins has been trying to make her objectified, put on lipstick, try to please the boys. Everything in her future is about, yeah, being the horror character. So I think that she is just as misguided in her philosophy As Well, maybe not just as misguided, but you see where I'm going at this, that both are dead ends for Carrie, that neither is a solution for her, and that she takes out all her rage on both her mother, that she kills her mother and Miss Collins. I get it this time. I never did before, but this time it's something clicked in me. I'm like, she is a victim and the tormentor, and I can go with both. Burn them all. I literally this time wanted her to kill everyone. I was with her in her destruction.
0: I still think you're being too mean to Collins. I don't think Collins deserved it.
2: What gym teacher, like, made you run laps until you passed out?
3: No, no, I do. I think it's in the movie. I do think that you can see both of them as failed mothers to carry, that both of them have clearly steered her wrong.
0: I think you're applying a 21st century mentality of right and wrong to a 1970s film, though.
3: I think it's a feminist critique. I think that this would be something that someone that looks from women's film perspectives would look at here, that these are oftentimes, you bring up religion, yeah, Madonna horror complexes, I think it's there to be read. But I think the things that you're ascribing as
0: bad and superficial, you're applying a modern-day morality to and judgment of— To a 1976 film, I think the intent
3: in this film is that Collins is a good person. Oh, sure. You know what? I just want to give people a different way of looking at it. That's all I'm saying. This time, I had a different way of looking at it than I ever had before. Any other time I'd seen this movie, I'd be right there with you. It's misplaced anger that gets Miss Collins killed. Here, given that I was really tapping into the subtext of this film, its religious themes, I felt like, you know what? It's okay. I'm with you, girl. Kill them all.
2: (laughs) My question is, I don't think killing them all is the right solution here, but what is the solution? I almost feel like I've heard people argue this case that Margaret was right. Carrie's mom was right that they were all going to laugh at her. And whether they really all were laughing at her, I think that's besides the point that her going out to the prom That caused more public scorn on her. There was a subset of those students that did laugh at her, that sabotaged her, that enraged her, picked on her. So it's a weird conflict. Like the mother, in her paranoia, there was a seed of truth there. There was a seed of really wanting to protect her daughter because maybe she had realized how messed up she had made Carrie and that this wouldn't go well.
0: That's the one thing that watching the movie this time really made me think about, which is that line, they're all going to laugh at you. It's the line from Carrie, but it's not in the book. It was added for this movie and it does make the mother more complex for a brief moment. The mother doesn't seem like a nut. She just seems overprotective (laughs) when she is trying to get her daughter to stay home. It comes out in this, the way Piper Laurie plays it. It's not because she's afraid of the devil. It's because she's afraid of her daughter being humiliated again. And Honestly, I don't think that fits the Margaret White character, but yes, given that it is in this movie, Margaret White doing that, I completely agree with you,
3: Jacob. Mama was right. Yeah, in this world, you could see it as very, very ugly. What are her options here? Tommy is a fraudulent poet. He didn't really love her. He only did it out of guilt. The other character, Billy, is abusive. I mean, is it easy to see from Margaret's perspective how all of this catty teenage behavior is sinful, And worthy of being shunned and shout down. You're right. You get both in the movie. It's much more easy to see that the normal world is the sympathetic world. But I do think there is a way of looking at this as Carrie had no option. She was given two choices, and neither one of which were palatable to her. So she had to take them all out. And the fact that it's blood again, it really struck me hard this time, the symmetry of the fact that this started with her having her period. It's why Chris picked pig's blood, right? They could have dumped anything on her. They could have put pig shit on her but it's the blood again because that was what was so frightening and shameful to her in the locker room
0: yeah that is made clear to me watching it this time i always just thought pig's blood abhorrent anyway but yeah and especially in the book in the book carrie is overweight and so what she menstruated could be seen as pig's blood and so what they dump on her is pig's blood
3: yeah, it's all about recreating the worst moment of her life for an even more public display. I mean, Chris is just awful here. Maybe you feel differently watching the band get electrified or the teachers, you know, get crushed by falling debris, but you're okay once Carrie walks out that door in a very brief, too brief scene, takes out Chris and travolta in the car
2: so before we get to carrie taking on chris and billy at the prom one of the things that de palma does is this split screen you one side we see carrie and again spacex doing those creepy wide-eyed looks that just sells the horror in this and then the other side of the screen you know showing what's going on was he doing this because audiences then wouldn't be able to make the connection between her telekinesis and a fire hose floating around or I, it's effective for me. It probably because Sissy Spacek is so effective as Carrie and is just so horrifying looking. I want to see her.
3: It's a Brian De Palma movie. You're getting a split screen. I can't think of one of his movies where he doesn't implement. Oh, there's a couple casualties of war, but for the most part, this is kind of his thing. This is his signature is that he will always find a way to uh, split the screen in half.
0: And in fact, there used to be a lot more of it. And in editing, even he decided it was going a little too far, a little too gimmicky and pulled it back. I have always hated the split screen in this movie from the time I first saw it. And do you want to know why I hated it? It's because I was watching it on a 4x3. <laughs> Seeing it for the first time in 16x9, I love the split screen on this. It is great to have this double image. It just really makes it feel invigorating to have this constant action. It makes you want to try to keep up. Should I be looking at the left screen? Should I be looking at the right screen? Sometimes you're seeing two angles of the same thing happening. Sometimes you're seeing two totally separate things happening. Sometimes you're seeing Carrie. And I've tried to figure out, is one side reality and one side Carrie's POV? And I don't think it is. I think it's just a stylistic choice. But with the red filter on the lens and the split screen and the music, love, love, love
2: this scene. Yeah, with all the chaos going on, you almost feel like you're in that gym not knowing what's happening with two different stimuli happening at the same time.
3: At one point, they actually have the split screen be one half the inside, one half the other side of the door. I thought that was its most effective application. Right at the beginning, you're seeing Amy Irving on the outside banging, trying to get in, foolish girl, while all the other people are getting hosed and fried. Yeah, it really works, and I agree. I never did like it when I saw it on television before, but now that it's letterboxed. You're right. Once you can finally see the image, and it's true of a lot of 70s movies, if you haven't seen it formatted in the way that it was shot, then you're really missing a lot.
0: And it's just wonderful carnage. I mean, even when you leave Carrie's POV, there was a lot of laughter going on. The majority of these
3: students do deserve it. I'm sure there are some innocents in the group, but... They all hated her, though. I mean, it's not about whether they were good people or not. They all treated her like crap, and now they must all die. No one was ever nice to Carrie. They ignored her, or they were mean to her. But no one ever rallied and tried to be her friend that we see.
2: Besides Sue, who makes it out alive. Right. And Tommy.
3: I'm telling you, that was a lot of guilt there. I don't know how much he eventually came around, but that wasn't his idea. And I don't think that he did it for Carrie. And again, Miss Collins' reasons, I think she had her own agenda.
2: I do wonder, what does all this mean? Is there anything more to it besides just a revenge story? You know, Stuart, you've talked about this different subtext. Okay, that's one interpretation. For me, though, I'm looking for something deeper. Is this, you know, we've had all this religion and this girl abused from religion. And then she finds out that it's just science. But now here she is. You know, is this just a nerd revenge fantasy? That's almost how it comes off to me. If it wasn't so well shot, I don't know if I'd be into it as much as I am.
3: And I think that that's a big theme for King. I don't know if he was a bullied youth, but he certainly favors them. And I feel like we will be seeing Carrie again and again in different versions as we go through the years. He tells the underdog story again and again.
0: And I think he also gets a little bit cleaner with his symbolism. Right here, I think it is a revenge tale, a supernatural revenge tale, a basic horror film. And yes, there are some feminist themes to it, which may not even have been kings. His wife helped him write a lot of the female portions of the book. But I think that what we have here is, yeah, a revenge tale, and I mean, Revenge of the Nerds eight years earlier, plus superpowers. Only this revenge, instead of putting a hot sauce in the jock's underwear, she kills them.
3: I wish we got more of the death of Chris. God, that girl deserved it. And it's really brief here. Once she finally gets it out of the gymnasium, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Here comes Billy's car, and she's in the driver's seat.
0: Yeah, on the one hand, they do get the rollover. They get unique deaths. Other than the gym teacher, they're the only ones whose death we really focus on. Everybody else just dies in mass. But by the same token, yeah, it almost feels like there needs to be more of a showdown than just trying to run her down with the car. And why did they even try to run her down with the car? Did they know she telekinetically caused all the carnage?
3: They were at the window. I don't know how exactly they got out of there, but they snuck out from under the stage, wherever they were. Carrie didn't know that they were there, I guess. They wanted to see how their prank had gone from the window, and they did. <laughs> so, yes...
0: But would you instantly think that girl is mentally controlling objects to move? She's doing the fire hose? That's a big leap.
3: I don't know. It came later in the book. I do think that... Uh, Carrie finds them hours after the fact in the novel, and it makes a little more logistical sense there.
2: I just figured they thought she was somehow responsible because she's the only one that made it out of there alive. They watched everyone else die, and she walked out covered in dried pig's blood.
3: She's not even upset. I mean, she looks like she's going to the wedding from hell, but she's just, like, slowly (laughs) proceeding down the street. A casual stroll, some might say.
0: Now, I don't know if this is true. I could not find validation but I did hear from multiple sources and read that Sissy Spacek was a big fan of continuity. Later on, that hand that reaches out from under the rocks, Sissy Spacek demanded it was her buried alive, not a stunt woman. So the hearsay I hear that I can only read on IMDb trivia is that Sissy Spacek was so into continuity, she wore this syrup for three days. She slept in it. <laughs> she didn't shower for the three days it took to shoot all her bloody scenes.
3: Wow, three days of that, yeah. But you can see it, though. I mean, she lives it. I can't tell you how important it is to have that evocation of the Fury here. I mean, she really sells it. And De Palma would make this movie again. His next film was The Fury. It was about telekinetics would destroy people. It was kind of like Scanners before Scanners came out. Amy Irving was in it. No good. Without Sissy Spacek, you just can't sell it the same way.
0: Now, in the book... Carrie does kill Chris and Billy after the showdown with Mama. She goes out and keeps destroying the town after Mama. But here, the final showdown for Carrie is with Mama. And she goes home and like the movie started with a shower, it ends with a bath.
3: Yeah, she finally comes to her senses. She was like, oh, I'm dirty. You know, it didn't even occur to her. She almost walks past her own home. She's like, oh, wait, I live here. You know, there's some good reaction shots here as Carrie's coming out of her days and the anger is subsiding.
0: And Piper Laurie standing behind that bathroom door, though, that is a frightening, frightening sight in that white dress.
2: Yeah, the whole house is covered in candles and you just you know something's up.
0: That's a fire hazard.
2: There's some on a mattress
0: without candle holders. Who puts a candle on a mattress?
2: (laughs) I was thinking that same thing. And they were those tall candles. Those, you know, those are top heavy. They could have fallen over any second.
3: Yeah, these weren't votives. I think that's like a evil spell thing is kind of what I get here. There's almost a witchy quality to her. Even though that she claims to be this Christian, I feel like this is uh, by way of some real mysticism here. That this is her way of fighting the evil spirit that is her daughter. It's not every day that you get a fundamentalist promoting abortion here. She's like, as Carrie's reaching out to get a hug, she's just like, I wish I had killed you when he put you in me. I mean, it's pretty brutal.
2: Yeah, earlier she says, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And again, you go to the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff about witches and, you know, back with Moses and that. So, I mean, there is something, if you go far back enough in the Bible, there's some stuff about that. But yeah, this feels like she's ready to do an exorcism or burn the witch or something's going to happen here.
0: But before it happens, we got to get Piper Laurie's Oscar speech, right? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) when she starts talking about the sex with her husband, I liked it! (laughs) I'm like, all right, this is the moment, right? This is
3: your Oscar reel. It's way over the top. It's crazy camp, but I'm not laughing. I mean, that's the weird thing. I'm laughing after the fact, but in the moment, it is horrifying. Yeah, with the score and with the atmosphere de palma created
0: you're right i'm not laughing at the time but it is unique i almost wonder if ronnie blakely and nightmare on elm street modeled her performance after this mother
3: oh i definitely feel like a lot of future slashers we've talked about it go to those shows nightmare on elm street's ending friday the 13th ending poltergeist for christ's sake where i feel like when the house collapses uh, y- yeah i mean a lot of later horror movies oh a huge debt here to Carrie and this scene specifically that said i was not prepared for a potato peeler to go into her heart is that what i just saw (laughs) i thought it was a carrot peeler but same thing yeah i was (laughs) i thought they should have gotten a knife for that but maybe that was too problematic to rig it was everything in the kitchen it started with the knives and by the
0: time they were ready for the fifth era it's like potato peeler um spork spatula (laughs) that's how strong she is she can get you with the potato peeler And now that I know that that was not Jesus, crucifying the mother makes a lot more sense. Because I'm sitting here watching. I'm like, are you really going to try to tell me Margaret died for my sins? I'm confused by the crucifixion of Margaret.
2: Yeah, but they still give her a Christian martyr's death.
3: Yes. And and I think that's intentional. I mean, the fact that their fight was over the Last Supper, she does represent that philosophy. She does represent, I'm not going to say she's a good representation of Christianity, but she does represent dogma. And here she's dying for it. Carrie's the outcast. Carrie's the pariah. Carries the unloved. She is not the Jesus figure. Piper Laurie is.
0: To a degree, but I don't believe her teachings are any that Christ would endorse. I don't see her having the selflessness of Christ. I don't see her... Well,
3: no, I I don't think that anytime someone strikes a Jesus pose, it's because they're honoring his word. Oftentimes, it's ironic. It's, It's an irony here that she gets this death. It's one I guess she would have wanted if she had to go out. Fighting the devil and being crucified is what she was living for. What else was she going to do? Keep praying in the closet for the rest of her life? I do like her like semi-orgasmic
0: gasps as she's getting stabbed. The dirty part of my mind did think it was the first time she'd
3: been penetrated in 17 years. (laughs) I'm sure it was. I think that's totally intentional. I mean, that's a Brian De Palma pervy touch is that he wanted her death to, yeah feel like some kind of erotic act most horror movies would be content and right here i think the book does
0: no no the book then has her rampage through the town and have her final confrontation with billy chris and finally she dies from the wound her mother gave her while being comforted by her psychically
3: linked sue oh you're right i had forgotten that detail i got it out of order i honestly thought And I guess it's to the power of this movie that the mother was always the end boss. Come on, it had
0: to end with her. This is the showdown. I agree. I think this is more impactful. If there's a villain in this movie, it's Margaret White. Carrie just is a person in a bad position. So, yeah, you're right. She's the big bad, killing the mother. And then, yeah, having the remorse of the matricide. Having, you know, trying to pull her down with that wonderful popping sound that sucking of the knife as it comes out and then suicide carrie kills herself by bringing in the house or did she? I couldn't
2: tell if it was intentional. Was she trying to bring the house down on the mom and she got caught in it? I don't think it's entirely clear. I do read it as a self-sacrifice. If we're going with ironic martyrdoms here, you know, here's the mom dying in a pose of a saint, even though she was no saint. And here's Carrie maybe realizing that she can't handle these powers, that maybe the world, she needs to become a martyr because the world won't be able to deal with with her powers, or she's not ready for the world to have that kind of responsibility.
3: Oh, I didn't see this as anything. For self sacrifice or for the good of the world. She had told the world, fuck you, and she was done with it. There was nowhere for her to go. I see this very much as giving up. I see this as a suicide. I don't see this as martyrdom.
0: I agree. But what I couldn't tell at first, and the way Sissy Spacek plays it, is was she in control? And especially since the house was supposed to be being hit by rocks, and as a child, you know, taking in my meta knowledge that there was a scene earlier when she was a kid and she was Was not in control and the house was hit by rocks. The way Sissy Spacek plays this scene, the look on her face, I couldn't tell if she was in control of her powers or if her powers, she was so emotionally distraught that she couldn't control the house being destroyed. I mean, she wasn't consciously breaking the light in the gymnasium and the ashtray in the principal's office. She hadn't mastered it. So, did killing her mother caused such a turmoil that it's created the house to collapse. By the end when she's hugging her, I do see suicide in her eyes. But when it starts, I see fear.
3: You might be right. I don't know, but I just take it and I guess it's from this viewing that I've been having the whole movie is that she realizes there's no point to living, that there's just nowhere else for her to go. The mom was the last step. She was actually going back to be comforted from her and got a knife instead. So, yep, yeah, that's it. Peace out. I'm going to hell. Can't be worse than (laughs) suburbia. Yeah, I think hell would be better than Bates High School. But I don't think that they did have this ending beat here. And it's one of the two things that I think that I always remember about Carrie. Obviously, the image of SpaceX soaked in the blood at prom is the poster but the moment I always go to is this last jump.
2: Yeah, when I watched this on television when I was had to be like 11 years old, this is what I actually remember. Yeah, I knew there was this prom scene, but this is the image I remember, this dream sequence, this hand grabbing out. It scared the hell out of me. Yes.
0: Yeah, me too. And because it wasn't in the book. When I'd seen this, I'd already read the original book. So I knew so much of what was coming. But that hand freaked the shit out of me. Even Stephen King himself said when he first saw that in theaters, he almost shit his pants.
3: It's a great one, and it doesn't hold up now because I know it's coming, but they do it a beat sooner than you expect. I know it's coming, I know it's coming, but it's just a second faster than I'm expecting, so it's always a bit of a surprise. Really well done. Jump scares are tough to do, particularly after seeing so many horror movies, but I think that it was the right way to go out. Usually they feel cheap to me when I see... Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, but this one, it's well earned. Now, sadly, I'm not
0: as familiar with Deliverance. I've seen it, but I don't know it as well as I know Carrie. I know the hand from Carrie, but apparently this is an homage or, as you have called him, a ripoff from De Palma, of deliverance oh. when the hand comes out of the water. Oh, you're
2: right. It
3: never occurred to me until just
0: now. Yeah,
2: I, I did not connect Oh, that. wow.
3: Well, now I need to go back to see Deliverance. I've seen Psycho, so I need to see the other one, I guess. But be that as it may, Brian De Palma may only be the sum of all of his influences. Here, I love him for it. I think that you could call him a ripoff artist and it wouldn't be wrong, but watching Carrie, man, I want him to keep ripping off because he's getting the best stuff and putting it together in a great way. But it
0: kind of pissed off Stephen King. King has a unique relationship with his movies. I don't think anyone would be less happy about us doing a Stephen King retrospective than Stephen (laughs) King. When he finds out we're including Children of the Corn Nine and Lawnmower Man.
3: Lawnmower Man (laughs) 2, even, at that. Yes, I agree. (laughs) He's a cantankerous soul, as many authors are. They're not necessarily fans of what Hollywood does through their projects. And we're going to see a lot of good examples as to why as we go through some of the worst of the adaptations. But come on, he can't hate on this movie.
0: At the time, he
3: did really like it. He thought it was a little too
0: satirical and his book more straightforward. He thought... De Palma missed a couple of points, but what really burned him, I think, is he'd read reviews and interviews where things were attributed to De Palma. You know, De Palma did this, and he's like, (laughs) but that was in my book. De Palma took it from my book, and De Palma did have an interview where he said, you see the kind of shit they give me to work with that I have to make a movie out of. (laughs) (laughs) So King can feel comforted that he's in the same company as Hitchcock. How do you think Alfred would have felt? But no, King did like this movie when it came out. It's the movie that made King. We would not be doing a King retrospective series if not for this. This book came out in hardcover and sold okay. It came out as a movie, and then the paperback became a bestseller. He'd already gotten a couple more books in a book deal before this was made into a movie because it had been optioned very early on, but... He was not a best-selling author, and he very well could have gone the way of so many authors who get a couple books published and fade away had it not been for De Palma.
3: De Palma made king. That blows your mind, doesn't it? I mean, it does me to think that if this movie hadn't been good, if it hadn't come together, if it had been, you know, maybe what we're going to get in next week or or the week after, an inferior knockoff, then, yeah, it could have actually meant – No future publications, and none of the other movies we're going to be covering in the weeks, months, and years to come.
0: He did give De Palma credit for two things, though. He loved Travolta's performance even more than his own characterization of Billy, and he loved that hand at the end.
3: Yeah, it's a good one.
0: So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Carrie? Jacob.
2: I have a feeling I might upset Stephen King (laughs) with my recommend, or not recommend here, as I get into it. Because, you know, thinking back, when I had watched this movie decades ago and you know had never really revisited it and going off my memories i remember it how a lot of these actors thought of the film they were in as camp i remember this zealot christian i'm like oh it's just you know this straw man argument against religion just over the top goofy film girl goes to the prom and gets pig's blood on her but as i sat down and watched it this time and you know revisited it with adult eyes and having a better understanding of filmmaking, this could have been a very corny, very campy horror movie. It is as strong as it is because of the director, because of Brian De Palma, because of the actor's performance. To see SpaceX selling Carrie about the different type of camera shots and the the good music parts. That synthesizer stuff, let's forget about that, but a lot of the music cues. When you get to that prom scene, when you get to the pig's blood falling, that is a perfect moment in cinema. the way that is all played out, going from the music to the silence the slow-mo, this movie is what it is because of De Palma, because of what he did with this film. I, I think Stephen King, if this is the film that made his career as a writer, then he's got to thank De Palma for that. That's what makes Carrie a strong recommend for me. Stewart,
3: I knew I would like it, but yeah, like you, Jacob, my memories of it were that it was a much lesser experience than what it actually is. God coming back to it, I was bowled over, and it is De Palma, someone that I don't normally credit with a lot. I'm going to give full credit here. I think that he did take a book that wasn't as good as what he achieves here on screen. I'm not going to say it was a bad book or junk in the way he may have dismissed it in that interview. But I will say this. He elevated the source material. And this is a better movie than we normally get. I think that, you know... In horror, I see things that I like, guilty pleasures, I recommend them, but this is really good movie making. This is a better made movie than we normally get, even when I'm recommending them. It is a better made movie than Halloween. It is a better made movie than lots of the horror films that we've covered. And that artistry is something I really want to celebrate. The other thing I want to celebrate, Sissy Spacek here. I mean, what makes Kira unique and wonderful is that she's just as good as a victim as she is a tormentor. Usually that's not my thing. You know, when Rob Zombie showed just as much bullying to his Michael Myers, I didn't take to it. You know, I don't think that just because Jason Voorhees drowned, that's an acceptable excuse to murder camp counselors. But I'm with Carrie every step of the way. I'm with her during her torment. I'm with her for her sense of discovery and her giving up to be hopeful. And I'm definitely with her when she takes everyone down with her. I think that it's an incredible journey and one that I am completely on Sissy SpaceX side for the entire time. I think this is going to be really hard. I like Chloe Grace Moretz. I don't know who can top this performance, though. This is, I dare say, a great way to begin a very long series, a real inspiration that I'm going to go back to, I'm sure, in some of the doldrums and some of the not great segments of the King retrospective. But I'm guessing when we're all said and done and we've covered all of the adapted works, this is definitely top ten, probably top five, maybe top three King adaptations of all. A high, high recommend. So you're saying it's better launch than Howard the Duck? (laughs) It is. Well, that one was fun in a different way. But yeah,
0: I'm definitely saying it's a better movie. I'm recommending this movie. I am not going to be as complimentary as you two are. I agree with you that technically it's a marvel and it is wonderfully acted. The performances we get here are so perfect for this film that absolutely Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie deserved the credits they got and the nominations and the awards they won. And I really like De Palma's visual style here. And yeah, that use of sound really worked for me with the bucket hitting. But the visual style of this film, with the exception of that very dizzying spin scene, I really like. That said, I do think this film suffers from a little bit of lack of story direction and character direction. I think the second act bogs. I really do. I think there are some real pacing problems in act two. But that's all I can ding it with is some pacing problems in Act 2. And I think a little bit of stronger characterization for some of the minor characters might have helped. But no, it's a strong recommend for Carrie the movie. I do agree with you, Stuart. I was very anxious for the remake. Being a fan of Chloe Grace Moretz from her kick-ass films and being a fan of King, I was really looking forward to this upcoming remake until I watched the Palmas. And then I'm like...
3: They might not be able to
0: live up to this.
3: They're not going to live up to this. Let's just be honest. I mean, I've seen the trailer, and so much of it owes a debt to already what we've seen. They might make a good movie. It's not going to stand out of the shadow of this. Yeah.
0: So I give this movie a recommend, but I will agree with what Stephen King has said in recent years. It's a good movie, but the book is better. I think the book is a head above this movie. It may not have the visual style because it's a book, but it does not have the pacing problems while keeping the suspense and the characterization. So definitely check me out over at Books and Notches if you want to know more about the book. I think this is a great movie. I think it's still a stronger book, but I think King also had some improvement ahead of him when he comes to writing. I talk
3: all about that over at booksandnachos.com. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that show. And if you need more podcasts in your life, we got them right now. Yeah, we talked
0: a lot about the psycho influences on Carrie this podcast. Well, if you'd like to hear us discuss Psycho... That's going on right now as part of our gold donation series. We're doing all six Psycho Films. You can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Those will only be available until Halloween and then they go into the vault with the previous donation shows. If you don't have... $25 $25 burning a hole in your pocket. You can't donate that right now. We do have a silver level $10 donation where you can hear our reviews of five Simon Pegg Nick Frost films. World's End, Paul, Attack the Block, Shaun of the Dead, and Hot Fuzz. Those have all been released. A $10 donation and you get them all in one nice email package to listen to at work, in the car, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find all those details clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And also at nowplayingpodcast.com, click the link to the forums. Come over. Tell us what you think of Carrie the movie. Tell us what you think of Carrie the book. We want you, not just Stuart, but you guys to join our book and movie club and read and watch along with us and engage in the conversation. Do you think the gym teacher's evil? Let us know. Come to our forums. We want to hear it. And next week, more Carrie. The Rage,
3: Carry 2, the sequel that came out 23 years later. I know nothing about this one other than I know you saw it, Arnie, and, and talked quite a bit about it back in the 90s. What can I say? It's what I do. So, Jacob Stewart,
0: thank you for joining me. Oh, you bet. This is a long road we got ahead of us, but what a great way to start. So until next time, it's best if we just go away for a while.
2: we we'll pray.
0: we we'll pray.
1: For the last we we'll pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I liked it. I liked it. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Carrie novel.
0: I read about him on the internet. The internet.
1: And come to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another movie review podcast in the Stephen King movie retrospective series.
0: This is so far from over.
1: You can also find more reviews in our archive section.
2: Beautiful!
1: (laughs) We have full retrospective reviews of film series including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avenger Films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com.
2: What's your favorite scary movie?
1: Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you for your support. I'd like your vote. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. To the devil with false modesty. The devil. <laughs> Now playing's Carrie Retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. you going to cut it. No way. Don't tell me no way. You're doing it. Why are you still talking? Just, just do it. You're doing it. Now playing Credit Narration by Brock. Maybe you should do an accent. No, don't do an accent. That's dumb. The Carrie films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Well, that's not even in me? the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. What? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated.
0: Did any of you ever stop to think that Carrie White has feelings? Do
1: any of you ever stop to think? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Thank
0: you, Mama.
2: You can go to bed now.
0: And if they don't know it from this, they know it from an Adam Sandler comedy album from
3: the 90s, right? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, do I, <laughs> really? I, there's a whole skit about. Oh, I don't doubt it, but I don't do Adam Sandler.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Adam Sandler has this thing where he and his siblings are all like, mom, I'm gonna go out with Susie. They're all gonna laugh at you. Mom, I'm going to school now. They're all gonna laugh at you. I mean, it's, that's the punchline is he says it about 800 times in the voice of crazy mom. I posted on my Facebook wall. They're all gonna laugh at you. And I got back Carrie or Sandler. Uh, The correct answer is Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) But from the shower incident, Carrie's classmate.
3: Just think of it as our blooper reel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Carrie's classmate. Carrie's classmate. Carrie's classmate. Okay. But other student and head bitch Chris Hardwick. Not Hardwick. Uh, Chris...
3: <laughs> I, b- I believe he's a DJ here in L.A. <laughs> uh,
0: Chris Hargison? Hargison? Yes. Or just Chris. <laughs> That's what I put in my notes, but... It's Her- Hargison. Early as 30 years ago, it wasn't... Oh, God, 40 years ago? 10, so, 20, the 70s 30, really 40. 40 years ago? Yeah.
2: Man.
3: Mm. It was the seventies though. There was a lot of women that looked like this. Shelley Duvall, we're gonna see another one in the Shining here.
2: We're do oh, I thought we were gonna do Popeye.
3: <laughs> we could, I guess. They they are making another one.
0: I think the Bible says something about suffering slings and arrows, doesn't it? So
3: <laughs> I believe that was Shakespeare. That was Shakespeare, but whatever, same difference. <laughs> You know, somebody that can write good, you know? Like, put some shit down about slings and arrows.
0: God or Shakespeare, whatever the two wrote it. (laughs) I read King, (laughs) alright? Clearly. Of course, as a character actor, I know him from Cuckoo's Nest and Cool as Ice.
3: (laughs) That you know them from both is awesome. (laughs) I... I
2: I love that. Like there's this really amazingly good film, and then cool as ice. (laughs) I
0: I knew I. uh, He's got one of those faces and comb overs that you never forget.
2: In high school, you wanted me to do something. (laughs) Sucking my dick would be a pretty good way to wow. (laughs) In my forties, you want me to do something?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Are we releasing this with a with a rating?
0: It's our 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 rated rated movie. movie. Explicit podcast.
3: It is very explicit today,
0: but uh we had seventies Bush in the opening, we can talk about cocksucking. <laughs>